The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. How's it going? And welcome to episode 104 of On The Wire, proud member of the Pitcherless Podcast Network. Follow the pod on the Twitter at on the wire pod. You can follow me at 80 grade. That's all spelled out. And you can follow Kevin Hastings at Hastings Kevin. We have great show lined up for today. So we continue our 2023 preview episodes going into the pitching categories and going with the volume stats for today's episode, wins, strikeouts, innings pitched. We'll get into the weeds and all that. But before we do, Kevin, I'm glad to be talking to you now now that we actually have Major League Baseball games on the television and we've got the Discord popping off because there's actual baseball to watch and talk about even more so in the PL Discord. And one of the things that popped up that I saw was we have a channel in there for those who don't know that just automated let us know every time there's a home run posted and there's a video connected to that and the first one that came across the feed is your boy Vinny p so congratulations you got the first home run of the 2023 season in the books hopefully many more for Vinny p and the rest of the royals but how you doing after that oh man it's great yeah a couple of days of spring training games under our belt now as we're recording it's overreaction season right? oh yeah oh and <laughs> One of them's driving me crazy. One of the overreactions really is driving me crazy. These videos of a pitch or hitter clock violation being called and people are up in arms. You're wasting your energy. This this isn't going to be a thing. By the end of spring training, these are gone. And the relatively few that we'll have once the players get used to this then it's on the players. Just stop wasting energy on this stuff. It's, but it's, other than that, everything is awesome. We got you know, baseball. The be- the best comments or that I've seen about the pitch clock on Twitter are the ones that are people are photoshopping the giant clock in the background or Alex Fass put out the one <laughs> the with music the, the, playing, the music in the, the video background. Game music. I, didn't, yeah. I didn't know it had that music. That went with it. <laughs> no, it was perfect. That's like the perfect encapsulation of what this is all. It's, it's He should have used clown music. Like his way, he should have used the clown car music as it was happening. Because, yeah, I think what is it? It's something like when this was introduced in the minors, there were like four violations in the first month. And after that, it was like one a month at most. Yeah, I'm seeing um, tweets like, oh, when this happens in a postseason game, it's not going to happen in a postseason game. It's just not. <laughs> it's not. It might happen in a dozen regular season games all year long. Yeah, I'm finding it hilarious. Yeah, we were joking in the Discord about how 
with the new PLV stat, it's like every pitch matters, right? Every pitch goes into it. So these automatic strikes, how does that get calculated into PLV? Is it an automatic 10? I think it's an automatic 10. Yeah. <laughs> it was intimidation that got you that strike. Yeah, exactly. Get in the box. Get in the box. <laughs> All right, let's get into some talk about these pitchers specifically as we get into those volume stats, those counting stats that we're always clamoring for. Typically, we try to get these throughout the season through streaming or by drafting. We're going to talk about the different strategies on that and to help us do that and break down these categorical targets that we're talking about today. Very special guest with us this week, Chris, more commonly known as at Baseball Pods. You can find him at the Twitter, at that handle. Of course, you should be following him there. Coming up, he'll be posting his annual podcast bracket. If that's the exact official name, Chris, I forgot. No, Bracketology. Bracketology. All right, yeah, steal that name. I think I don't know if there's a TM on that or not, but you could take there it. There could be. There could yeah. be. No one sued me yet. Yeah, there we go. I think you're safe. I think you're safe. But also, you've got the baseball-pods.com site that your written work is on there as well. So make sure you guys are following that that as well. But Chris, thanks for taking the time to join us. I know you, you had a little bit of a break, but you had a great panel over at Potapalooza as well. So I'm glad to get you right back behind the mic just like an hour later no i appreciate the invite always love coming on this pod in fact you guys i think were referenced on our potapalooza channel we were talking about how to what makes a good podcast and one of the areas i thought of growth that i mentioned was people pay subscription to ftn in large part because of vlad sedler's amazing mm-hmm. fab content and i think one of the reasons you guys are so popular is because you do that weekly fab podcast while people are thinking about those decisions. And I think that that on the wire podcast is really, I, to be honest, I'm, I apologize in advance. I told people, I think that we need more people in this space competing <laughs> with you guys. You guys do an amazing job, but I think that it's a space where when you think about all the content that goes into debating the first round or the second round of the draft, Really, in-season management is where you're going to make your money and you're going to be competitive and you need to be listening to as many people as possible. And this podcast is, I think it's one of the reasons it's risen to the top of the crop is because everybody wants to hear, okay, this is the, I don't want to forget to put a bid on this person when they can really help me. Yeah, I appreciate that. I think I know Kevin and I, that was one of the number one things that we wanted to accomplish with this pod, besides providing good, honest recommendations and name drops and stuff like that. But we really wanted to be like, we're recording this right now on Saturday evening. The pod comes out on first thing Sunday morning. We wanted to be able to make sure that we're providing the most up-to-date information or insight that we could instead of like recording on Thursday and then posting it on Friday and then Anything can happen on Saturday to, to adjust. There's been plenty of times where we put out a show and by the time you listen to the show at noon on Sunday, something has changed. Like it's just <laughs> going to happen. <laughs> but yeah, it was really important to us that like we wanted to make sure if we're going to do a show about Fab Runs on Sundays, it's got to come well, out on Sundays. Well, what I said is I think my joke, and I don't think it's really a joke, was I think the reason that there are so few pods that come out on Sundays about Fab is because all the people that would do it are spending their entire Sunday doing fab. doing fab. <laughs> <laughs> They'd rather do fab recap shows yeah. after it's all yeah. said and done. Those are good too. Those oh are good yeah, too. yeah. It's yeah. good to look back and learn from and then move forward throughout the course of the next week. 
Absolutely. But yeah, I get it. I would I totally understand. But we'll we'll put out the content and then we'll soak it all back up in on throughout Sunday, as you like you said, as we spend our Sundays doing fab. I'm glad to know that it's our voices are in the background reminding everybody. I, my recommendation always is do your fab Friday and Saturday, listen to us, and then be like, oh, I either missed that guy or confirmation bias, either one. That's what I'm looking for. All right. We're going to do today's show very similarly to how we do our regular season pods. As we always, we have some news and notes to go through. We got some, I got some stuff I really want you guys to dive into. So I'm going to give each one of you guys one of these news items. If you want to chime in on the other, by all means do, but I do want to get into the categorical review that the episode is about. And of course those wins, those Ks, even though the volume, the innings pitched so let's get right into our news items. Kevin, we're going to start it off in Kansas City. Drew Waters, the supposed center fielder to be for the Royals, he has a left oblique strain. He should be out for about six weeks or so, which ultimately keeps him out of spring training entirely and should be expected, I would assume, to start the season on the IL in April. What kind of impact are you seeing this having in the Kansas City outfield, especially center field, because with Michael A. Taylor gone to Minnesota and Waters was presumably going to inherit the job or at least being groomed to to take that position in my eyes, how, especially as a Royals fan, how are you looking the outfield shaping up? Yeah, this is coming for straight from the team, GM, manager that they're all saying that now this makes at least for the month of April, this is Kyle Isbell's job to lose. They want him to take this job. It's his defense is what is carrying him there in the past. They have not allowed him to face lefties when hitting. I think they may even do that. And at UNLV and again in the minors, he's hit lefties fairly well. That's hopefully something that can turn into over time that he gets to face both left-handed and right-handed starting pitching. But yeah, it's Kyle Isbell's job to lose. I would be remiss if I did not bring up the fact that this probably looks like Nate Eaton is the right fielder, at least on a majority of days to start the season. There's lots of ways he can get in the lineup. I don't care how it is. I want him in the lineup. (laughs) And those that have been listening know my love of Nate Eaton, and this could help him as well. Yeah, I also saw Fran Mill was in the starting lineup as a starting DH in the first lineup. And I'm thinking at least it was the first one I saw. Props to the Royals being the first lineup that I saw go out publicly. And I feel like the Royals do this throughout the season. They're typically the team that does not wait to the last second to put out their lineup. And I applaud them. More teams should be like the Royals in this respect for, especially on Mondays as we're trying to set our lineups. (laughs) I'd really appreciate just a shout out to them for that. As far as Isbell goes, you got to at the very least to start the season going up against Minnesota. They have an entirely right handed rotation as of right now. So he's, got that going for him at least in the first series of the regular season i said i'm going to give each one of you guys this but i'm curious chris i saw you pump your fist a little bit when kevin's talking about kyle isbell do you have an opinion i take it you've either drafted isbell or plan on drafting isbell what what's your opinion on the outfield here i was a big isbell supporter last year and was hopeful that he was going to get an opportunity i took him very late in in draft champions leagues and a number of places last season his defense is going to help him play. He's got power and speed. 
probably going to be a lower batting average, but if he could lower the strikeout rate a little bit, and actually most of the projections do have him lowering his strikeout rate a decent amount and raising his walk rate a little bit, which would turn him into potentially a 240, 10, 15 kind of player over 500 at bats, which is super useful. So I will, I've also been having him here. One talks about the Edward Olivares shuffle, mm-hmm. and which I get, but Isbell's <laughs> been the guy that's been on my radar since last year, and I've been continuing to target him late in draft champions and other draft and holds formats this year. So I'm a pretty big fan. All right. Keep an eye out for Kyle Isbell, especially in your late drafts. At least, as Kevin, you mentioned, in the month of April, it should be his job to lose and should get a lot more playing time, at least to, to start the season. Chris, let's move over to Chicago as they they bring back Elvis Andrews, presumably to be their starting second baseman, obviously, as he was brought into the team via trade last season to be the replacement shortstop for Tim Anderson as he continued to stay on the IL pretty much the remainder of the season from the trade deadline on. And he did very well for himself. He lived in the leadoff spot for the White Sox from August 31st onward. He... He presumably will not be the leadoff hitter going into 2023. Roster Resource assumes he will be in the nine hole, which arguably could continue to give him opportunity to at least run the bases, which he's proved to do well in Chicago, not as not as often or not as well in in Oakland throughout his time there. But what is your what is your take on Andrew staying in Chicago with the White Sox, where he obviously found some needed success this late in his career? It's funny. Very similar to Isbell. If he gets 500 at bats, to be honest, if they if both of these guys got 500 at bats, I think you're looking at a average in the 240 to 250 range, probably about maybe 10 home runs. I know Andrews had more than that last year. That felt like a blip and a little bit lucky when you look at the projections. Once again, like maybe 10 home runs, 15 steals. I'm by the question for me in Chicago is how much are they going to run? New manager, we'll see what the new tendencies are. But to be honest, I'm buying in on like a White Sox rebound, a, rec- a Tony LaRusa recovery year, where I think you had someone in the clubhouse that, for whatever reason, clearly did not fit the team mentality. And I'll be honest with you, I don't love the early signs coming out of Chicago, like Tim Anderson, who I do love as a player, criticizing one of the biggest cheerleaders, reporters that's out there. And so there's definitely, they've got a chip in their shoulder attitude, but I think it probably was a really nasty place to be last year. And I'm, I know that's a little bit of a narrative play, But I'm going to bet on that. I'm betting on, I'm not going to bet heavily, but I don't think you have to. I think you can get just about everybody in Chicago in 2022 at a price lower than you could in 2021. Andrews should play every day and he'll have probably second base and shortstop eligibility, which is nice. And so, like I said, if you're looking for someone late in the draft that can provide middle infield flexibility, give you a little bit of speed, not kill you in other categories, I think he's a nice add. Yeah, I personally like this a lot just because of, his comfort level in Chicago was pretty obvious last year for what he did, especially going away from Oakland. But the fact on the surface, him gaining second base eligibility, you're like, oh, that's great. Multi eligibility. Nope. Andrews was not being drafted as a starting shortstop. He was going to be your middle infielder regardless. So I don't think it adds as much as even as I thought, like initially, oh, that's great. But 
what am I going to do? Move him from middle infield to middle infield? That's not a big deal. It just it allows you to have just that added piece of depth in case of an injury. In case now that, that second base from every everybody's told you in their positional preview episodes of the different podcasts is a lot less, it's a little bit more shallow than shortstop. So it is nice to get that in general. It doesn't mean that you're still going to be drafting Andrews as a starting second baseman in most cases beyond like your deepest of leagues, your AL onlys and stuff like that. But it's nice to have the depth for sure. Yeah, Uh, I should just say, I'm thinking specifically right now in draft and hold best ball kind of mode. So that's where it's it's helpful. And yeah, we get into the more uh, traditional drafts where you have fab and other things. It's not as big of a deal, but I do love multi-position players in draft and hold leagues. Kevin, it took a while for Andrews to sign somewhere. We kept talking about like, hey, he's still out there. Like Jerson Profar is still out there. These are the type of guys that you expected to latch on somewhere before spring training started. Is there something to be said about, I keep talking about Andrews obviously has some kind of comfort level here and he went back to Chicago. Does that play into your opinion of a player when they make that kind of a decision to either go back to a place for either less money or even after a long period of time? Or do you think it was more of maybe Chicago was the only team calling? I doubt they were the only team calling. And we don't know what kind of offers he was getting from other teams. But I think there is something to be said for him going back. And with the managerial change that that Chris brought up that and we've brought up on past episodes, I think the most intriguing thing to me, although Elvis Andrews was not, in their spring training lineup today. And like I said, overreaction season. But (laughs) this is what's amazing to me. Tim Anderson, Luis Robert, Moncada, Eloy Jimenez, Vaughn, all in the lineup today. All healthy, right? That's what I'm getting at. These guys are all (laughs) healthy at the same time. And yes. Take a picture. Tim Anderson was out. (laughs) When Tim Anderson was out last season, they brought in Elvis Andrews. He hit at the top of the lineup, and that added a lot to his value for those of us that just absolutely loved what he did for the final two months of the season. But even hitting in the nine spot, which I'm presuming will will happen for this team, there's a lot of runs available there with those five guys coming back around behind him at the top of the lineup and if they can stay healthy. And like we mentioned last week, I think there's a mental aspect to staying healthy too. And if these guys are having fun and like the changes that are being made, then yeah, I'm with Chris. I like this lineup quite a bit. Like he said, all these guys are going later than they did last year. And it appears we'd much rather have them this year than we, than what we ended up getting out of them last year. So yeah, I'm loving this. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna use that as a segue, Kevin, to I'm gonna jump ahead a little bit and talk about Eloy Jimenez, who he fits into the bucket right now of the things we always hear about the best shapes of our life. It's everybody's favorite acronym, everybody's favorite tweets that they see right before or during spring, the start of spring training. And we heard it recently with Eloy. He dropped, apparently he dropped close to 30 pounds. He feels more nimble. And one of his focuses in the spring training or one of his main focuses is being able to stay in the outfield. He wants to play the field regardless of what we heard early in the off season of the White Sox management basically calling him and telling him to leave his glove at home. He's the DH. He doesn't apparently doesn't want that. And so what, I mean, what kind of, how much do you take into this specific rhetoric? Not so much the best shape of your life, but the fact that 
Eloy is adamant. He's vocal about he wants to be in the field. We know that the field is what it's, it's one of the things that has caused some injuries for him in the past. He's statistically not a good, not that good of a fielder and probably belongs as a DH. But is that just my opinion or how do you, th- how do you see this working out for the White Sox outfield and lineup as a whole? It's interesting to me. I just told you about their first spring training lineup of the season and all these healthy guys and Eloy Jimenez <laughs> is one of them. And he was in right field, played right field first day of spring training. Now, is that for the fans is that for his ego or is that something they want to do? We don't. I think I would like to think that he just ran out before anybody can make a decision. And, said, and he just yep, said, I'm here. here I, I don't am. care what the card says. <laughs> I'm here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that could be, this is a young guy that has had some injuries, but the, at least the biggest one was pretty fluky, right? It was crazy that that catch he was trying to make over the left field. Wall. Maybe, that's why, maybe that's why they're moving him to right field. Don't deal with the left field wall. We'll put you in right field. (laughs) This is something we're going to have to pay attention to. Obviously, most players would rather play in the field, not just DH. And he's along that, especially at his age, still fairly young. I think the White Sox would prefer that as well if they think he can stay healthy. So, you know, they're going to see how he reacts, how he feels after games. Sure, today he was probably only in there for three or four innings. I think he got did get two plate appearances, but we'll see how this comes around. I personally, I'm hoping he plays the field as somebody that likes Jake Berger late in draft champions leagues, but there's, there's not room for him while everybody is healthy. That part of the reason I like him is all these guys aren't going to stay healthy, healthy. <laughs> but at, that would help maybe get some plate appearances earlier in the season for a guy like Jake Berger. So I like the idea of it. I hope it it's what comes to fruition. We're really not going to know for at least three or four more weeks till we get towards the end of March when we're playing the spring training games with the starters in there for five or six innings. We're talking about injuries. Let's let's we got a couple more things about injury related things to talk about, Chris, specifically something that that came across late. Apparently somebody who had been injured all last season till the very end and then was injured again, had off season shoulder surgery. And that's Ozzy Albies, the presumed second baseman for, for Atlanta. He said, he quoted that he was going to be 100% by opening day. This was just a cleanup surgery for his shoulder, and he should be good to go. We're going to talk about some other little injury notes in a second, but specifically with Albies in this rhetoric, when you hear him say that, like how much confidence does it give you to hear a player specifically say that? Or are you taking that with as big of a grain of salt as you can, especially somebody who was literally out in almost the entire season last year? I don't know. It gives me no confidence whatsoever. Okay. But I, but let me. I want to talk about Eloy for just one minute, and get, then I'm going to jump to Albies really quick. I'm also a big Jake Berger guy, so I'm glad to hear that Kevin is as well because I love it when smart people think the same way I do. It's good confirmation <laughs> bias. But I just same. want to think about like now, and if Robert and Benintendi and Oscar Colas are healthy. Eloy can want to play that outfield every day, and I want him to want it. I want him to feel good about it. And what I'm hoping is they give him like one or two days a week out there at max. And then he DHs most of the time and still gets his ego fed because he's a terrible defender, but he's out there with a glove and 
gets every day at bats and stays healthy for the season. That's the dream for Eloy for me. I just wanted to point that out. Like there are three good outfielders on that team that are not named Eloy Jimenez. And then there are other people like Andrew Vaughn who are not really outfielders who are also better defenders than Eloy Jimenez. <laughs> Gavin Sheets is probably also a better outfielder. There it is. I was waiting for Sheets to come up somewhere in this. <laughs> He's competing with Berger. I'm trying to forget yeah. about yeah. Sheets. Yeah. Right? Exactly, exactly. But my point is I want Eloy to be like, yes, I'm super healthy, and then to be like, you know what, that's great, but we got these three guys. They're a little bit better than you. So really work on your defense, but let's focus on that bat. But sorry, I didn't want to – I just wanted to like – that I was fading. The reason that's important for me is early in, I was fading Eloy a little bit earlier because I was worried he was going to play every day in the outfield. And when I, once I saw Colas is coming and they've got sheets, I'm like, okay, I think the White Sox are smart enough to manage those opportunities for yep. him to injure himself running into walls in the outfield. He's up on my list now is basically what I'm saying. He's becoming more of a target. In terms of Albies, do I believe it? Not at all. Zero. I believe nothing players say these days. What I will say is I was not in on Albies at all right now with his at his draft cost because I think he has to have 600 plate appearances, 650 to be honest, probably to earn where he's going as an accumulator. I love this guy. I love watching him play. I love the bouncing chains and the ebullience and he's a little guy with a big bat and the swagger and the bounce. And he's one of my favorite baseball players in the world to watch however like i will have probably almost zero percent of him in redraft because i just think there are he needs to get that 650 probably number to earn where he's going and odds are he won't whether it's by injury or by the lineup is so stacked he could move down and lose out on some platoon splits in the batting average and the sorry the batting order Kevin, I know we talked about our targets for hitters early on in the season for either opportunity or volume. We didn't really touch on him because it really wasn't a consideration, I think. But like, is news like this, even though he said Albies says he's going to be 100% by opening day, but is it worth taking a look at Orlando Arcia to pretty much the only infield, the only middle infielder on the bench for Atlanta that could fill in for him if he has to miss time early on in the season? I'm not going to consider drafting Arcia right now, but he's definitely somebody to keep in mind and he'll be available because I think that's going to be most people's opinion. He's not going to be drafted. He's going to be out there. And if we get to a point where, okay, Albies isn't ready for opening day and you need a middle infielder and need plate appearances, then Arcia will be somebody I'll look at because I think that is where they will turn. They're already rolling with – Von Grissom, a shortstop, right? So yeah, that's not even a question there, anymore. Yeah. So the, there's nobody else. So he's definitely somebody to just remember is going to be available because I think he will be available almost everywhere. But uh, I don't think he's somebody I would draft. I would draft somebody with more of a dart throw and then knowing that he's probably there for me if I need him. Yeah, it's probably safe. Atlanta's if Atlanta was one of those teams that had eight straight games to start the season, just for volume's sake, it might be somebody I throw a dart throw. If I did a draft today, um, I might consider that just for the volume. And then if it shows if Albie actually is 100% or even 
80%, then Arcea just gets tossed into the first fab run before the season starts. Sure. But that's a, it's a pretty deep play for sure. If, if that's going to be a consideration, the other injury things I wanted to touch on, we had a right before throughout the course of the week, before games even got started, we're seeing all these different small little injury injury notes come come across the newswire some big some not so big example Miguel Vargas he got a hairline fracture while on his pinky of his right hand while he was taking grounders the other day John Alvarez reported some hand soreness not knee soreness hand soreness he and at the time wasn't swinging a bat Seo Suzuki he was scratched from the Cubs game on Saturday with a tight oblique Kyle Wright he has said he his shoulder feels great after a quarter zone injection but you may not you won't be making a spring training debut for one or two series for Atlanta there are a whole bunch more that I'm not even that I'm even talking about and this is the other half of this is worst shape of your life kind of news, right? <laughs> Instead of best shape of your life. How much of it, Kevin, how much of an impact do these types of injury and these notes that you're seeing the very start of spring training right before major draft season starts ramping up in March? How much does this impact your considerations as you're doing drafts at this time of year? And if you do a draft tomorrow, you don't have time to wait to see how any of these injuries are playing themselves out. Yeah. Most of these, yeah, I read them and I'm like, Oh, okay, cool. And like you said, it's the opposite of best shape of my life. Right. Most of them. I, the one of the examples you used here that scares me the most is the guy that says he feels great. (laughs) A cortisone injection in the shoulder for a starting pitcher before spring training even starts. That's concerning to me, especially as a guy that I, I've drafted a few shares of Kyle Wright. That I'm worried about that a little bit. Sure, maybe he's fine. Maybe and maybe one of the other guys is more injured than he is and may end up missing most time. But m- most of these things are, yeah, they're I read them, take them into account, brush them off, and then as I'm watching spring training games. Guys aren't playing more and more, then I'd be more concerned. We're not near that point yet, but a cortisone injection in a shoulder for a starting pitcher after five months off before (laughs) spring training, this is worrisome to me. Not to mention that this is a rotation that has Ian Anderson and Mike Soroka supposedly fighting for that fifth spot in the rotation. It may very well just make it easy to just give both of those guys the shot and give Kyle Wright some time to rest up and rehabilitate in the first two weeks or two series of the regular season, never mind spring training. Chris, if you're doing a draft right now, my point though is like you have to make some decisions. These guys that I'm at least except for Jordan, these are not like first round guys. Like these aren't guys that you're worried about at the, at the top. Do you, do they drop down your board enough where you're probably not grabbing them because you're just like, I can't risk grabbing an injury guy at that late in the draft? Or is it the opposite that late in a draft, like the injury risk is the last thing on your mind? I think it, it's case by case. And I was fading right as it was. So this makes it even easier. I agree hundred percent with what Kevin said in terms of the concern there. Vargas, I hope this gives me a little bit of an injury discount. I think that's nothing hairline and your pinky no i'll take that i love him this year i'm trying to get him everywhere that i can <laughs> as much as possible so i hope if you're listening to this do the opposite of what i say and you <laughs> totally fade that guy he's gonna be terrible and not get any playing time don't worry i'll, I'll edit that out it'll be fine <laughs> <laughs> 
<clears throat> Suzuki obliques are weird, man. And obliques can be troublesome. And part of, and like, I, as of today, like if I was drafting tonight, would I be downgrading Jordan or say a Suzuki? Probably not. But I will be like scrambling to try to get more information on both of those. Jordan doesn't worry me as much, but obliques can tend to linger and they can, it's a term that can be used to describe a number of different ailments. And sometimes it's literally a few days off. And sometimes it's like they're missing two months. Next thing you know, and say it is like part of his value is being an athletic five tool kind of guy that can contribute across the board. So I want to learn more about both of those. And that if I had just drafted either of them, I'm like, are you serious? <laughs> exactly. Oh, that's the people that are concerned for any of these guys. You just draft them. You're like, ah, oh, really? <laughs> Or, you've, guess, done, well, or you've done a bunch of drafts and you have a few yeah. places with each one of them. There's nothing worse. I still remember a couple of years ago when Framber got hurt. Like I literally, it was like one of, one of my top, like SP2 pick was Framber. I was like, okay, he's going to, and then Bowie went out for like months. I was just like oh. in the middle of the draft and it totally messed my mind up for the rest of the draft. Yeah, I think these are the things you hear about too. And then you hear the crowd. This is why you don't draft early crowd comes out of the woodwork. Um, yeah, but they, we don't pay attention to that. I don't know who they, I've never heard them, but I know they exist. <laughs> yeah. But as you said, Kevin, a lot of this stuff ends up weeding itself out pretty quickly. There might be one or two things that hold tight, but I don't feel like that ends up being tradition, if you will, where most of them stick around all season. All right, so... The last thing I want I wanted to talk about, and Chris, I'm going to throw this at you to start, and it has nothing to do with injuries. It's just, in my mind, <laughs> almost too much of a coincidence for this to actually have happened. Noah Song, he was a pitcher in the Boston Red Sox organization. He hasn't pitched in two years because he's been in the Navy, had to have completed his, his time there, got did not get protected on the 40-man roster by Boston. Got picked up by Philadelphia, of course, Dombrowski, who drafted Song with his time while he was with the Red Sox. Picked him in the Rule 5 draft for the Phillies. And he got a nice, and we talked about this with Shelly Verstray a couple months ago at this point, that it was the weirdest loophole. They didn't have to, the, the rule in the Rule 5 draft is you draft the guy there, they have to go on your 40-man roster, and they have to be on your major league roster. But because he was in the Navy, they got the, the exemption that Boston lost. They lost their exemption because he'd been with the organization too long. They got it. And then lo and behold, like the day before spring training started, it was announced that his time with the Navy was he was being discharged from the Navy. He had finished <laughs> his time there and he was reporting to spring training for the Phillies. Presumably, he will have to be put on their not only 40-man roster now, but also be on their major league roster come opening day. So this guy, again, hasn't pitched in over two years. He's supposed to have one of the best arms in baseball when he was drafted. A lot of potential here. Dave Dombrowski obviously loves him. Is this a guy do you think Dombrowski will force onto the team regardless just because of what he, he saw and he went out of his way to draft them again in the Rule 5 draft? In what kind of capacity will he have for the Phillies? And is he worth somebody keeping an eye on in what kind of format? First of all, it's a great baseball story. And it's one of the baseball has so many idiosyncrasies. And this is a great one of them. And God bless the guy for his service to the country and for really sacrificing a significant portion of his early career. You want to root for him. At least I do. When I look at his story, 
He's 25. I think he's actually been more than three years since he's pitched. Mm -hmm. I think it's been 39 months. So it's a really long time. My and what I've read so far early on is that if the Phillies view him as a reliever. Now, some people might say, okay, whatever, Phillies bullpen, meh. But when you look back at the Phillies bullpen, it's not clear that they have a closer. They have a lot of hard throwers who don't control well. And guess who else is a hard thrower who doesn't project to throw with great command? Noah Song. He fits in well in the back of that bullpen. It would be a story if he emerged with a, with a role of significance in the bullpen. I could see taking a shot at him with a late 40s draft and hold pick on a 50-team roster because stranger things have happened. And like you said, Dombrowski clearly is pulling the strings there and also clearly has an affinity for this guy. And there's also, just because of the the peculiarities of the major league rules around this, they have an incentive to put him on the roster. Yeah, I am not, I'm pretty much avoiding the Phillies bullpen, but this is certainly somebody who, if you were trying to speculate on saves late in a draft, you could do worse than. I personally, a Sox fan, yes, I am also rooting for him. I'm hoping he stays on that roster. No, I'm not hoping he stays on the roster. I'm hoping that they just drop him and they send him back to Boston and he's <laughs> pitching in Portland or something like that back in the Red Sox organization. But I should have worn my Sea Dogs. Yes, <laughs> that would be nice. Nobody can see it but me, but that's okay. That's You're just <laughs> catering to me. That's fine. But we got, I don't view him as a potential closer there. I see him as somebody, if the organization... If Dombrowski has imparted his view of him onto the rest of the organization, he is or could be a future starter. It's just that he has to do his development at the major league level. He doesn't have the ability or the Phillies don't have the ability of doing that in the minors. And so I would see him more as a middle reliever, a long man, two, maybe three innings. They build him up throughout the course of the season in that role. And that becomes more interesting to me especially if he can if his arm has a little bit more control than what you're alluding to throughout the course of the season yeah maybe not somebody i'm looking at right away is in a draft and hold or in a 15 team or kevin is this some we talk about the value of these middle relievers who can put up innings we don't know what song's role will be it's probably not worth drafting him in a redraft position but are you keeping an eye on this situation Oh, absolutely, because it does appear he is going to have a spot on the 26-man roster. So he's definitely worth paying attention to for that reason, see what role they put him in. And then the thing is about a guy like Song, it's unique. We don't see this often. He could make huge strides throughout the season, right? Not pitching in game action for so long. So he's one of those guys that while we're keeping an eye on him, I might be a little earlier to jump than I typically would just because if he does make that leap and then all of a sudden they need a spot starter and he goes out and throws four and a third great innings, next thing you know, oh, okay, we're going to, we're going to try him at the back end of the rotation or something along those lines because he was really good pitcher at Navy. So it's somebody worth keeping an eye on. And like you said, he's doing his development at the major league level because of his rule five status here. So yeah, somebody I'm going to pay a little extra attention to and jump earlier if things look like they're going well. Yeah, I just, I drafted him for a buck in my new redraft yesterday. And I'm sure that came across as 
oh, that was a weird pick. Oh, oh. And then one of those things was like, it starts clicking. Hopefully it starts clicking for other people. Oh, okay. We'll see if it's a dollar. So obviously even in a exactly. new draft, it's like, all right, I drop. If it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. But in my opinion, especially as a Red Sox fan right now, it's pretty obvious that Thad Ward for Washington and Noah Song are going to have excellent careers with their new teams. <laughs> and it'll probably start this season. Shout out Thad Ward, man. Yeah. Big fan. All right, guys, let's let's get into the talk of the town we're talking about right now. And those are the categories of wins, K's, and innings pitch. We're going to get into that in just a moment. We do have to take a quick break. All right, we are back. You are still listening to On The Wire. I am Adam Howe, joined by Kevin Hastings. We are lucky to have with us at Baseball Pods himself, Chris. Chris, we're going to talk about wins, K's, and innings pitch, the volume stats, the categories that usually come with putting as many pitchers into your lineup as possible in, in any given week. We saw how, I think most of us saw how streaming pitching went for us last year. Spoiler alert, it was terrible in most cases, but it's still going to be a strategy. It's still going to be a thing we think about, but the start us off in a grandiose way talking about drafting these categories what is your overall thoughts as you've completed drafts or are as you're going into drafts draft major draft season if you will in march the importance of the volume stats pitching volume as a target of yours in 2023 drafts it really obviously depends on format in uh in drafting in draft champions leagues or draft and holds leagues i want to make sure that I am getting, I prioritize volume a little bit more necessarily than in the leagues where you can fab. That being said, I think that the notion of streaming pitchers and streaming starters specifically is less and less appetizing every year that we look at it. I think that's a trend. I think that'll continue. It's interesting this year when you look at the top of drafts and pitching is getting pushed way down. And Everyone says that always happens and the main event comes yeah, up. Sure, it changes everything. <laughs> first of all, 90% of people aren't, 99% of people playing fantasy baseball are not drafting main event teams. So that's like nonsense. And secondly, yes, it'll go up a little bit towards the end, but it's still lower than it ever has been, even relatively. So I recently did a draft champions league, ride the 15 pick and Colin, I had been fading pitching in my mm-hmm. early drafts. I've been loving Kevin Gossman around five or six as my ace and building from there. I even have a league, and I don't love it, but I think I can work with it, where Logan Gilbert is my number one pitcher. And I've got got like Gilbert, Mm -hmm. Kirby, Rasmussen, Springs type of SP one to four. But I have the 15th spot, and Burns and Cole were both on the clock, and I drafted both of them. And I'll be honest with you, it's maybe my favorite build. Because I think I'm kind of where people have been zagging. So people have been fading that. But getting Burns and Cole at the top, man, you're just talking about 30 win back of the envelope, 30 wins, 450 strikeouts. And that's ridiculous. That's the next four best pitchers you're going to get. It's funny to me. The talk of the offseason analysis is Rob Silver's presentation at FPAS where he talked about how wins are actually really important. We don't do them. We ignore them. And that's and I, and I think that we'll see how that affects draft season. But for me, I've just been trying to pick pitchers from winning teams that I feel like I've been targeting that in the back of my head in middle round. So 
I'll take a Jordan Montgomery on the Cardinals, even though he had really bad luck with the Yankees with wins. But I feel like he's a really good pitcher on a really good team that's not getting respected. Or do I think Jose Urquidy is another example of a guy who is going to get a lot of wins and have relatively good other stats. So I think I think we we respect strikeouts very much in fantasy. I don't think that's ever been the issue. But I do think we've gotten away from wins as we've gotten more towards more advanced analytical stacks. And it's okay. We might not be able to say you're going to have a great amount of wins if you're a good pitcher on a good team, but odds are in your favor. And so that's why that what I've been doing is targeting, just bumping up those good pitchers on good teams a little. That's the tiebreaker for me. You know how sometimes people say, oh, I'll take two players if one of them has multi-position eligibility. I'll go. take sure. the multi-position person above. That's the way I look at pitching now. I'm like, if you're on a team that I predict you're going to be above 500, I'm gonna. That's going to be the tiebreaker for me more than anything else. Yeah, I think that's a gr- that's a, overall that's the common that's the common thing I hear is like, all right, if you're on a good team, that's a plus. I think I think what a lot of thing gets forgotten about too is how good is a bullpen behind you. First of all, your starter has to go five, and preferably right. they go six because then there's less variables. And I think that's why. A lot of people either fade wins or they just ignore them or they have been, as you mentioned it, because wins are the they seem like the least thing not only that you can predict, but also the least that the least the stat that the starter has the least control over. They can go five, let up no earned runs and that. But there's so many other variables from the offense has to put up runs to to balance to put themselves in the win. Their bullpen has to not blow it. The wind has to be blowing just the right way. <laughs> and so that's that's an area that I'm focused on a little bit more this offseason is trying to keep an eye on what has what have teams that have historically had bad bullpens. What have they done? So I keep actually going back to my Red Sox be like all right they had one of the worst bullpens in the game last year that's what Heim Bloom said he was going to focus on at the start of the offseason and it's what he did for the most part he did other things uh good bad whatever but the bullpen is something I am I'm still not convinced about but I'm less concerned about it than I was at the end of last season Kevin have you changed your handle yet you haven't changed your handle yet to chasing wins i'm waiting for that day to happen uh, we keep joking yeah. about it you're probably not going to do it but the fact oh, that- i tried oh. to do it but it's taken <laughs> even though it had the count hasn't been touched since 2011 it's oh taken. i hate yeah. this <laughs> yeah chasing wins we can't chase wins is what we were told for years and then we started talking we can't chase wins but we have to and then as chris pointed out in arizona rob silver told us oh we definitely have to he even left out the preface of <laughs> we can't, <laughs> we have to. And yeah, that is a big emphasis has been for me this draft season so far. Good team, good bullpen. The thing you brought up, Adam, that I think gets overlooked, is this a guy that's going to pitch not just five innings to qualify, but even go a step further. Not many pitchers that, Definitely not pitchers we're talking about today are going to average over six innings per start, probably. But the higher you get above five, the less you're relying on that bullpen, right? So all these things I am taking into account more than I ever have before. Yeah, not to mention we'll get into these early the targets, early season targets, but 
you have to assume most pitchers are not going the full distance in early April as well as they're continuously getting ramped up after spring training and into the first couple of weeks of the season. Let's Kevin, let's talk about strikeouts then. Like where are you, as Chris said, like strikeouts are something that we've respected as a fantasy community for years and we continue to do. How are you targeting strikeouts specifically? Are you looking for them early? Are you not worried about, are you trying to get them late and not worry about the ratio impact that they, those players might have that come along with it? Because there are some strikeouts later on in drafts. They come with some baggage most of the time, but are you less worried about that or do you need to get those strikeouts early and often? No, I think I've talked about this earlier in the offseason. My big weakness on a lot of my teams last season was strikeouts. And so the adaptations I've made is not always, but maybe taking a starting pitcher a little earlier than I would have in the past. But more so, it's been pushing up when I'm getting my middle guys, right? My my third through sixth starting pitchers, all of those guys are moving up to where I'm getting guys that I can count on for a few more strikeouts each. It doesn't take a lot, right? When you're talking over an entire season, if a hundred strikeouts at the end of your end of your fantasy season last year would have given you several points in that category, a hundred strikeouts isn't a whole lot. We're talking about 10 per 10 or 11 per starting slot in our roster. We're talking, that's a strikeout every three weeks. We need a couple. That's what we're talking here from each spot, right? So it's not a big thing. It doesn't mean you have to, if you like getting your first starting pitcher in the third round, you have to go get Burns and Cole, like, Chris did when they fell to him at a turn, but it, it means just moving each spot up a little bit and concentrating on it a little more throughout the entire draft. And it all adds up to a lot. Like I just said, a hundred strikeouts. If you just bump your third through fifth starting pitchers, three pitchers, bump them around. How many strikeouts, how many more strikeouts are you going to be able to get doing it that way? And so that's what I've been concentrating on. In addition to the chasing wins. Yeah, of course. And of course, this all is predicated on the fact that we're going by what we're predicting these strikeouts, where these strikeouts are going to come from, whether they are coming from projections that you're using, your own your own analysis. Uh, and then if you're not getting them in the draft, you're, whether you like it or not, you're forced to stream them throughout the course of the season. You're adding players that you think are going to add categories and this is for any position, but we're talking about wins and Ks right now. Chris, When you're obviously not a fan of streaming anymore, or I don't know if you ever were, but it might be a necessary evil at some point during your season. So when you are down in strikeouts and you're looking for a guy that can bump up your strikeout totals for the week, how granular are you getting? Are you looking like at the matchup for that pitcher against that team, against those batters that they are probably going to be facing throughout in that week? Or is it, I'm just going for the guy that I know is going to get two starts. So he has a better shot at getting double digit strikeouts for the week. I get as granular as I can. And one of the things that I think I've started to do more and more in recent years with some success is 
streaming high strikeout middle relievers instead of starters. The chasing the phantom wins, it, it's you're more like it feels to me. I don't know if statistically this is true that I'm just as likely to get if I have an elite high K middle reliever, it feels like I'm just as likely to get a win from that as I am as a below average starter with two starts. And I definitely know I'm going to, on the whole, win ERA, whip, and probably maintain the strikeout pace with them. So if I see a middle reliever who's going to, who strikes out 12 per nine, that's on the waiver while, and I feel like they're going to get four uh, innings pitched that week, I'm going to get six strikeouts from that guy, which is more than I might get from a pitcher who's going to get bombed in one outing and maybe last, and who's got a five or six or seven per nine strikeout ratio over two starts. So I'm more likely to do that and then try to really hopefully fix that problem early. I do think I have a, I'm pretty good at getting pitching. I don't wait on pitching forever. I feel like I generally have pretty good staffs, but sometimes you get hurt by injury. Sometimes you get hurt by bad luck. Like last year, no one saw Jose Barrios imploding and I had plenty of him. And so trying to, or trying to replace that was very difficult. So I found that I had more luck and success filling that with high strikeout middle relievers, some of whom became closers, some of whom became starters, than just getting whoever had two starts that week. Yeah, I like that. I think we talked about that, Kevin, quite a bit, if not last year, the year before, really focusing on the Brett Suters of the world, or the Colin McHughes of the world, especially when they hadn't pitched all weekend. And so yep. you, if you had yep. a very good, sh- there's a very good chance that they were going to be pitching on Monday or Tuesday and then probably again and like you said Chris if you know that they have a good shot of getting between four and six innings if you you time it just right you could get more than six innings out of them if they get three appearances and they happen to go two innings in in, in each one of those or two or more if that if my math is a little bit better so no with that in mind Kevin last thing I want to talk about is like the effects of streaming. And I know we're talking about wins and Ks and they're important. That's what we're talking about today. Next week, we're going to talk about those ratios, but the risk that you take with these streams just to get the volume, where's your line when it comes to this stuff? Like the, the volume is important. We talk about it all the time, but at how much of an impact are you willing to take to your ratios on a small, very small sample? I think that's what a lot of people look at. It's like, hey, you know what? This is just one start. If I get blown up, I can make up for it. That compounds itself throughout the course of the season. But where is that risk reward line for you? I think it, as much as we're talking about chasing wins, as much as we're talking about maximizing strikeouts when we're drafting and all these adjustments that we're making due to the way baseball has changed, fantasy baseball has changed, and how we have, how our teams have performed in recent years. No matter what, we have to do it at least a little bit. And I think to, I think the more comfortable you are, then the then the better it's going to work out o- over the year, over the season. Times when it. Sometimes it seems like, oh, this is so risky and it ends up going well. And then, and times you think, oh, this is the perfect matchup and they get blown up. So that I just want to point out the 80th percentile in wins for NFBC main event teams. So we should, like Chris mentioned, 
There's only 47 main event leagues. Not everybody's playing those. But a 15-team league, look at it that way, 15-team leagues, the 90th or 80th percentile for wins was 91 last year. That actually went up. With all we've seen with the way more relievers are used than starters, it went up. In 2021, it was 89. So very close. So we're looking at 90 wins. At least that's what I'm looking at. 90 wins is what we need for the season. Sure, we're going to get some of them from our relievers. But even if we get a, a really good number from our relievers, and even if we have two really good relievers so we're that we can throw seven starters out there, we still need 12 wins from each starter on average of who's in our lineup. You know how many people had more than 12 wins last season? No, I don't. <laughs> 26. That doesn't fill up seven it, starters for 15 teams. No, 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 no. Seven times 15 is way more than 26, right? <laughs> so this I'm is what we're looking at. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. have to do this. Sure, we can put the, yeah, the guys with 12, 11, 10, we can get those in there, move them around when we can, but we're not going to have all of the guys with 10 to 12 wins on our roster. Our opponents are going to have them as well. I mean, we have to stream. It's just to the extent that we have to extreme. And I think the prevailing thought out there right now is to do it as least amount as possible. I think even though I am chasing wins in drafts and strikeouts as well, I think I'm going to embrace this. It's been a couple of years, but it was Derek Van Riper told us when he was here that he tries to stream pitching to, to the best that he thinks he, he can do with his teams, but he knows he's not doing it enough. That's what he said a, cu a couple of off seasons ago. I have felt that way. I stream quite a bit. I think I'm fairly selective about it. I think we have to. I think you're right, but I think you need to do it aggressively early because to me, that's the key. Like I think the mistake a lot of people make is they sit on their guys they're, they're SP6s and 7s, and they sit on them for two months. And meanwhile, new pitchers are popping up early. And what we know over the course of the season is the quality of the starting pitching that comes into the season goes down as the season goes on. So you, I'm much happier to stream in April, May, even June, than I am in August and September. If you're streaming in August and September, you might hit on some hot prospect that comes up. and But mostly that's the leftovers. That's the dregs. You want to be streaming. I, I agree with what Kevin's saying. I want to try to do that early and often so that I get – my ideal is that I'm streaming and I get lucky and by streaming I end up with a solid five or six pitchers and I'm only trying to fill in one spot really on my starting rotation in August and September when you're down the stretch because the streaming options in August and September are trash and they will destroy, they will light your ratios on fire in general. It's like Absolutely, Chris. And if you're not streaming early, you're not getting the breakouts. The guy that streamed right. him already has him rostered. Exactly. And so this is where like where Nick Pollock talks about this a lot about the Tobies and who he's drafting later. And I think it's a really, 
especially in redraft leagues where you have fab, I think it's a really underrated aspect. Pick a player, whether it's a pitcher, this goes for offense too, that you're going to, you're going to, and Eno talks about this too a lot. You're going to know whether you want to keep them or not for the season. They're going to force a decision. Like they're going to either going to get a shot or they're going to hit or they're going to just bust and you'll be able to cut them and look for something else. And by churning, you'll end up with some quality. If you use all your reserve spots and all your late picks on just the steady eddies on the people that are like barely holding on to league average, you're not getting anything from that. And all you're going to end up doing is holding on to barely replacement level players that are difficult to cut. So go hard, go bold with those late picks in pitching. Don't pick Zach Greinke. No offense, because I love Zach Greinke, one of my favorite human beings and baseball players. But don't pick him if Brandon Fott's on the board at the same time, because if Fott gets a spot in the rotation and hits, you could have an amazing pitcher. Zach Greinke is not going to be an amazing pitcher in 2023. He's just not. So think about the that that part of it as well. Yeah, you got you, Chris. You mentioned Nick Pollock. He was on the show a couple of weeks ago, and his, Ooh, yeah, if, if you haven't heard of him, yeah, you can check him out. He's pretty much everywhere. FSWA award winner now. Oh, if you haven't heard baseball, right, yeah, right. <laughs> but his quote here is, and he says it a lot too. Like, you stream so you don't have to. Like you stream until in an effort to not have to stream anymore. And I think that. Kevin, I mean, we talk about it by midseason, like when do you start focusing on your categories and you need to figure out where you need to either improve or start streaming to get that volume. And I think that is the mindset of a lot of fantasy players. I'm going to stream when I have to. And Chris, you nailed it. In my opinion, the same thing. It's like you want to, you can stream any position. As you said, this goes to offense as well. You can do it early and you can do it often. So you don't have to do it later because the, yeah, people have been doing it. It, They haven't, maybe they haven't been streaming, but they've been picking up players. They've been picking up the the talent and they're, it's gone now. And that ties into what Chris said and the way Nick, brought it up like when he picks up a streamer going in his starting lineup i think of a streamer as somebody i'm starting that's not the way nick thinks of it a streamer to him is somebody he's picking up that he has interest in but he's still watching for another couple of starts hoping that they pop and then he'll put them in his starting lineup so that that's a very important point yeah, I think we we refer to them in season as stashes. And I think the term stash is usually has a connotation of being a prospect or have you. But really, any a stash is anybody you put on your bench. Anybody yeah. you pick up and put on your bench, that's a stash. All right, I think that's all a really great in- insight. Let's talk about some players that specifically, <laughs> I know we're talking about it in, in, in the context of a draft, but really these players, this we're talking about streaming week one. That's really what we're talking about here. The targets that we're looking at in the very end of our drafts, if you were to draft today, going into the 2023 season of pitchers that are going to provide you and hopefully an added win a couple extra strikeouts that you might have not have had without them going into again the first four days the first four days of the season that's uh, that's week one and then week two is a full seven day week especially when it comes to fab that's really important to realize how many players you're going to be able to put into your lineup and how many players are going to be able to fill up your rotation early on in the season so, of course, we kept the same rules, which, in my opinion, made things a little bit harder for this position. Players, only players you could consider are going at ADP of 325 or later in the last month's worth of online championships. And 
players that have not been drafted are not only eligible for this exercise, but also encouraged because you know that they're going to be available at the very end or tail end of drafts. So somebody to consider. This is also to consider that you might not have to draft these guys either. There is a fab period, at least in the NFBC, the Sunday before the first week of the season. So you can keep these guys on your watch list as well to see how they do in spring training. Rotation, I say this for this episode specifically because rotations are not set. You go on roster resource and one, two, three, four, five, sure. They might be the five, but you don't know the order in which they're going to go out there based on the matchups that they're going to get, their handedness. As I mentioned, Minnesota has all righties in their rotation as of right now. That might not necessarily be the case come opening day. There are also teams that have enough off days early on in the season that they don't need five starters to start the season. So these are things you want to keep an eye on for. Schedule is really important in this situation because the guys we're going to talk about, I don't expect to hold on to almost any of these guys past their first, maybe their second start, especially in a 12-teamer as we're saying here. So Chris, I'm going to start here with you. We're going to go with two starters each. You want to give any extra shout outs to more than more than two, that's fine. But I am going to ask you guys also for a relief pitcher you think could add to the categories as well as we took a good chunk of this episode talking about how that can be a viable and important strategy throughout the course of the season. We'll start off with starting pitcher number one, Chris, somebody you might be targeting at the very end of a 12-team draft, maybe toward the end of a 15-teamer as well, or somebody you might fab in the first week of fab just to get them in there. So the first guy on my list was Kyle Bradish of the Orioles. We're talking about this in February. I do think he has a rotation spot coming into spring training, but this could change in a month, right? I'm assuming he's got a spring training spot picking him. He's got a lot of skills that underlying skills that I like a lot. And he had a, an injury last year. I think it was a little bit of shoulder inflammation that caused him to miss a little bit more than a month. And when he came after he came back from that, he basically had a string of starts. If you look at uh, his game log uh, that were almost all excellent, he had one blow up against Boston, but Outside of that, he did not give up more than three earned runs on any start from July through the end of the season. Furthermore, if you look at the work that Eno and Jordan have done that's now on The Athletic with the revised kind of stuff plus, he rates as like an SP5, and then which are, which is, that's great, solid SP5. And I think Baltimore is a team that is on the come. I do think they'll win their at least half their games this year, and I think they've got a good bullpen. The other thing about it, I will tell you, is a dynasty player. He is one of the most players that has been tar- I've had him and stashed him because of these skills and really smart players that I play. I play. I'm lucky to play in leagues with people like James Anderson and Eric Cross and others, and they all come after Kyle Bradish. So I'm like, you know what? No, you're not getting him, and I'm going to stash him. And and I think he's got a pretty good setup to be a pitcher whose underlying skills that he could be an improving pitcher on an improving team. Man, I hate that, man. I hate that aspect of doing this, right? It's by no means am I going to put myself in the realm of the guys that you just mentioned, but just 
my home league alone, it's so much harder to make a deal when I can't go after players anymore. Adam has a <laughs> podcast. So he must know what he's talking about. <laughs> and it's a lot more difficult to get a fair shake at a trade in, in, in situations like that now. British is definitely somebody, Chris, you li- probably listen to more podcasts than most of us do. I like to think I listen to my fair share. <laughs> and British definitely comes up in quite a few circles. So I was not surprised to see this call out by somebody. And I knew I wasn't going to have to put it on here. So I appreciate the the added confirmation bias that I'm hearing (laughs) out of you on that one as well. Kevin, old hat. I like the name you put on here because it's not somebody you're, it's like the Nate Eaton of pitchers. You're going to talk about them if you possibly can. And so talk to us about Jose Quintana and why you might be targeting him at least for the first week or two. Jason wins, man. There you go. Jason (laughs) wins. That's what we're doing here. Also, he was really good last year. Now, I know when I say that after the all-star break, he never gave up more than two earned runs. It's like talking about ERA and ERA from last year doesn't matter from this year. I'm still going to say it. He never gave up over two earned runs after the all-star break. I think he gave up four earned runs or more a handful of times. One time over four, that was six at Coors. I None of us are throwing Jose Quintana in our lineup in a week he's pitching at Coors. So that doesn't affect us. So yeah, the team construct, as we talked earlier, good lineup behind him, good bullpen, good team. And he's going to go five to six innings, sometimes more at double digit wins for a guy going this late. I'll take it. I would bet a fair amount of money. He gets to double digit wins. Yeah, and that's the name of the game, right? That's the name of the episode is basically I'll probably call it Chasing Wins because that's <laughs> what we're doing here. Uh, with plenty of games to start the season, he should get a start in that first series. Here, here's the thing. I almost forgot. Thank you for bringing that up, Adam, because it's tricky, actually. I had this bookmarked and I got the page right here. So you brought this up with roster resource. We don't know the order. But the roster resource has Quintana. This is a guy that I plan to have on my roster all season unless things go wrong. I think he's going to be fine. I think I'll be using him all year. However, early in the year, roster resource has him as the number five. If he is indeed the number five, he probably misses a couple of starts because the Mets have, after starting with eight straight games, then they have an off day. So if he gets skipped that weekend, then he could probably get skipped again the following weekend. And this is the difference it makes. This is why this is important, and you're going to want to pay attention to this. I feel like he probably moves up and is not the fifth starter because of all five of these veteran starters, and yeah, I'm calling Senja a veteran, just not in Major League Baseball. Five veteran starters for the Mets. He's the only lefty. So I would hope that they move him up in a four-game series so they at least start a lefty in one of the four games against the Marlins. Now, if that is the case, then he gets the Marlins again the following weekend and then the Athletics in Oakland the weekend after that. That's absolutely amazing. (laughs) The converse of that is if he's the fifth starter, He might pitch in Milwaukee for their home opener, who he fared well against last season a couple of games, including one in Milwaukee. They like to strike out a lot, but they can also put up some runs. 
and then he might get skipped and then skipped again and then at the Dodgers. So would you rather have at the Brewers and at the Dodgers in the first four weeks of the season or at the Marlins at home against the Marlins and in Oakland in the first three weeks of the season? We all know the answer to that, and that's going to be worth keeping an eye on. Yeah, I'm agreement. I think that he does get moved up. Some of the best hitters in Miami are lefties. So you want to assume that they're going to want to throw a lefty against that lineup with Jazz and Luis Arias at the top of the order. But I think we talked about that a couple of weeks ago as well. It's just his being him being the only lefty in there. Just ask them to put him up just to keep other the other lineups on their toes. But you're right. Like it's obviously something that needs to keep you need to keep an eye on, and that's what spring training is for, right? And to see how these guys are being used, how long they're being used, and looking at that early season schedule to see you got to look two or three weeks at least down the line to see how your guys are going to be used. If even if you're not going to drop them, you need to know that you need to pick somebody up to fill that gap. Absolutely. All right. I got two guys on here. I'm just going to mesh mine together and then go on to your guys' other choices only because my two that I'm on here are pretty much opposites. I'm going to start with Matthew Boyd in Detroit, back in Detroit. I'm not picking up Boyd thinking he's going to get a win, not only being on Detroit, but also like just coming back from the flexor surgery and hasn't pitched seven innings last year, all in relief with Seattle. But he does, he is in the rotation. He's getting $10 million. He is going to start and he's a guaranteed, like a guaranteed start more than likely in that first series. I'm picturing him in the top three of that rotation, going to start against Tampa Bay, who they haven't really changed a whole lot to their offense, at least as of right now on paper. And if you're looking at it from a, a 30,000 foot standpoint, fifth least home runs, they hit the fifth least home runs against left-handed pitching last year. And that was obviously that's Boyd's calling card. That's why everybody, that's what kind of brought him down when everybody was clamoring for him to be Boyd boys and all that. The other hand, the other side of that is that Tampa Bay had this, they had this, I felt as though they had this stigma of being a team that actually struck out their fair share last year. And they were pretty much middle of the pack, but they did have the best, 10th best K rate against left-handed pitching last year as well. So it wasn't their worst quality, but I am hoping that if I'm throwing out somebody like Boyd, that it's because I know they're going to get a start in that first weekend. And as Kevin, as you point out all the time, there's a good there's a good possibility that you did not draft nine guys that are going to start in the first four days. In most cases, it's a three-game series. And so if you can get somebody to at least fill in and get you the innings, he may not go five. He may, though. Like He's still in the rotation. He's retooling his changeup. He's doing whatever he needs to do to revamp up. We'll see how much he does in spring training to gauge whether or not he will go five. But if he goes four, and he strikes out four or five and doesn't give up any home runs, it's a win. Uh, So this is a little bit more on the, I think on the riskier side, especially when I was talking about how much do you risk for the ratio of blowups? It's more of a guaranteed innings in that first weekend. I'm not, if he does get bumped to be the number four starter, I'm not putting him out there against Houston in the second series of the year. So if I'm drafting him, I'm planning on dropping him in the first fab period if it's been announced that he's not going to be in the top three of the rotation. 
My other one here that I think I'm looking at a little bit more heavily is Nick Pavetta. And this is both for the strikeouts and for the wins. I, I alluded to it earlier, looking at a team's bullpen, what they did in the offseason to improve their bullpen. Even if even a team that had a good bullpen last year, if they did nothing to keep or they did any, they lost pieces, that's a negative point as well. Boston did everything to make it so that somebody like Nick Pavetta could do just enough he, and which is what he did, at least in the last the month and a half of the season last year, um, went five innings in pretty all but the last like all but two of his last ten or twelve starts last year. So he went the five, he went the distance, let up he let up a couple of runs. He's gonna have his blowups. His first start should be, he should be in the top three of that rotation as well. Should start against Baltimore. And yes, Chris, I agree. They're going to be a much better team. They're going to win half their games. I'm just hoping it's not going to be in the first series, obviously. But then they, but then he does get Pittsburgh as well. Granted, all these games are in Fenway. That's something to consider as well. They're not in Baltimore, which has become much more of a pitcher's park. Pittsburgh, one of the better pitcher parks in the game. So it is in Fenway. Then they get three games at Detroit as well. So he's probably getting the two. He's getting two of those series, either at the front end of Pittsburgh and the back end of Detroit, or he's getting the back end of the Baltimore series and then skipping Pittsburgh, getting Detroit as well. So these are good matchups for him to take advantage of. The bullpen should continue to help him and he should be able to rack up anywhere between four and six strikeouts in each one of those starts while getting you that win. And then, Take it from there. If he it looks like he's he's rolling, it could be a Vargas rule, as Nick always points out. You just keep rolling with them, or you got what you came for and you move on. That's a, it's pretty simple there. Do you guys have any takes on any of the recommendations that have been made so far? Otherwise, Chris, I'm going to move on to your second starter. I dig the Pavetta call late. I'm not a boy still. I never was. <laughs> and I like a late dart on Joey Wentz and draft and hold. Not starting with the team, though. So early, that might be a nice stream where you take a shot on Boyd. If that doesn't work, keep Wentz in your pocket. My So my second, my second guy is Jose Suarez from the Angels. Angels, once again, thinking about wins, should be a team that have improved. They've made a lot of moves this offseason trying to pretty much improve themselves across the board. I do think they'll be a better team. Suarez should be their fourth starter in a six, currently six-person rotation. And if you look at the beginning of last year, he was settled up and down in the beginning of the year, did not perform really well between AAA and the Angels. Shout out to Baseball HQ and their forecaster, for pointing this out and noting that in the second half, Jose Suarez had seven wins, 379 ERA, and a 1.09 whip. That's really good. That seen wins with those ratios is excellent for where he's going. And I like the fact he's 25 years old. This is not a guy, he, you could still see a skills gain. And he has he's been a healthy guy. He's been able to put up innings. I think that this could be a really, really good late shot on a team that should be good to give you a really cheap source of 14, 15 wins with ratios that you can actually be proud of when you talk to your mom about your fantasy baseball team. <laughs> and who doesn't do that? <laughs> yeah, I like the call out a lot there. I like the fact that the, those second half stats are important. 
And I think a lot of people- With the context, you, with the right context. But you hear it and you're like, I hate splits or with exactly like you said, without the context, if you don't hear the context, you automatically almost block it out. I don't know all the other variables, what have you. If you, as long as you get that correct context to go along with it, you can realize you put it in its place, you put it in context and you realize, all right, this made this actually made a big difference. All right, Kevin, you got uh, oh, Sorry, one. I, you, uh, my honorable mention, though, is Clark Schmidt. And that's because I don't believe in Domingo Herman. I don't think the Yankees like him. I don't think his teammates like him. Clark Schmidt is a really good pitcher with a really good pedigree who has had really good results. And even if Domingo Herman hits, I think that between Nestor and Severino and Montas now out, there are going to be unfortunately, I seem to wear my Yankees hat, I think there are going to be opportunities in the rotation and Schmidt's the first guy up and he's going to, he should rack up the wins with the really good ratios. So that's my honorable mention. Just if you had said season long, I'd have put him over Suarez. But since you were talking about the beginning of the season, I put Suarez first. Yeah. The first series that if Schmidt were to just take it outright as the number five, he would get Philadelphia in, the, in that first series. So they also the Yankees also have a couple of off days in that first week, so I, yep. I do wonder how much they're going to quote need a a fifth starter to when that point actually becomes. But they do have six or seven games straight, so that they will need that fifth starter early on. But how many times they get skipped, as Kevin was talking about earlier with Quintana, is going to be a possibility as well. Yeah, season long, Clark Schmidt, good call out there for sure. All right. Yeah, Kevin, moving on to your other starting pitching option. Again, looking for guys that could do some damage for you in the wins, Ks category, maybe even innings pitch if that's your category, but in general, your volume categories for the first couple series of the 2023 season. I got another guy here that I am hoping will remain on some of my teams for the season. That's Alex Wood with the Giants. I have maintained for... A few years, even when he wasn't healthy, which is fairly often. Some would say it's very often. But when healthy, he is a very good pitcher. And Chris brought up Eno Saris's new projections that Jordan Rosenblum helped him out with. Alex Wood comes out as number 75. And that's taking innings, innings into, into account with 126 innings. 75th best pitcher he's being drafted outside of that like well over double and yeah there's relief pitchers in there as well it's pretty crazy to me he is being drafted in most of the online championships i believe when i sorted for the last month as you brought up i did that yesterday in 25 leagues i guess not most 60% 60% have been drafted in about 14 out of 25 leagues when I pulled this up. So he's available out there. And like I said, when healthy, he's been very good. Right now, as far as we know, he's healthy. Right now, as far as we know, he may or may not be in the Giants starting rotation. I think and I'm confident that he's in the starting rotation. Then it comes down to, for the first few weeks of the season, the schedule, because he could be the five guy. They do not play that opening Friday of the season and then get a day off the Tuesday of the first full week of the season. It could very well be the third week of the season before we see him. And then he's pitching against the Dodgers. 
So it could be a slow start to the season for Alex Wood. But once again, when healthy, I, uh, he's a very good pitcher in my mind. And the rankings that Eno puts out are based on stuff and location. So I, where he's coming in at 75, in spite of the lower stuff plus side of that ranking, I me, Adam, I'm, I'm as much of a sucker for Alex Wood as I am for Jose Quintana. Like I am here for Alex Wood, and I will tell you, I will defend him against the injury-prone label. So just look at this guy's career. So to, he has had twenty at least 24 games started in 2014, which is a lot. Twenty, Let's say 24 games started. If you start 24 games in a season, I don't consider you an injury-prone pitcher. I consider you're making most of your starts. 2014, 2015, 2017, 2018, we forget 2020, 2021, 2022. Six, so we think of them, we all think of this guy as this injury-prone pitcher. And in six out of his eight full major league seasons, this guy averages has at least 24 starts. And his career strikeout, I know I'm supposed to be using strikeout percentage. This is where I'm still an old man. But he strikes out almost a batter an inning. He did over that last year. He strikes, he his walks around two to two and a half people per nine. And he allows about a home run per nine, less than a home run per nine for his career. And he's pitching in San Francisco. Come on, man. Like, I'm 100% here for this guy. And now he's going to get hurt while I have him on all my teams. But <laughs> 24 starts a year for six out of your eight full seasons. That's pretty good, right? Yeah, I agree, Chris. I think that there's that stigma. And when I say wind healthy, I think like some of his issues, especially with the ERA, in spite of the other metrics, the XERA, FIP, and XFIP being perfectly fine for last year's last season, under four, he had an ERA over five. And I think I love it. when you everybody go, should flash that, make sure exactly. that's exactly, I'm going to, I'm going to put that in my highlight of this podcast, exactly. Alex Woods, five plus ERA avoid because the <laughs> few, they also see 2019 and 2020 he had an ERA over six and over five again. And those two seasons, that's what I'm talking about. When healthy, he's very good. Yeah. I don't think he was healthy at that time. That's what I'm getting at. I don't think he's considered injury prone. He's thrown almost 140 innings each of the last two seasons. He's 32. And we're projecting him for 125 right now. If he's the 75th best starting pitcher in 125 innings, how good is he when he is out there giving you those innings? Much better than top 75 even. Yeah, and you guys are quoting new projections over at The Athletic. I'd be remiss not to at least reference the new PLV projections that were just put out as part of the PL Pro. And as I'm pulling up Alex Wood, I just love the fact that right around him is Jose Suarez, Kyle Bradish, and Matt Boyd. Everybody uh, we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just pulling this up for the first time. Just saying, just going to throw that out there. The, I just think that means we're all geniuses. Of, the, <laughs> of those four, the best ERA project is Matt Boyd, but right behind at 3.84, if you believe it. Alex Wood at 3.94 ERA on the season with 124 innings. To your point, guys, at, with just 124 innings, who's this at twenty at a 23% K rate? Who's to say if that goes up, how much better that a projection could actually look? I just have this image of a very miniature Alex Fast jumping into the database and delightfully adjusting. <laughs> 
the Matt Boyd ER stats to his liking. <laughs> no comment. I'm not sure that would never happen. That would never happen. All right. All right. Let's get into some of the relievers that we think, at le- again, at least in the very beginning of the season, you could possibly stream without having to spend any fab by drafting them with your last pick or two to utilize in that first week or week and a half of the season. And I'm going to lead us off here with my reliever, somebody I was just brought, it was just brought to my attention recently as well, but I thought it was a good addition to, to suggest here. Giovanni Moran of Minnesota, he gets three at Kansas City and then three at Miami, and then three versus Houston. So it's for the first two series. Those that, those alone look very tempting. And I referenced this early in the podcast, but Moran is only one of two lefties in the Minnesota bullpen that has a rotation com- com- entirely made up of righties. So I think that both him and Thielbar have the ability or the opportunity, at least in that first two series of the season, to really get utilized quite a bit based on matchups that go that end up happening. And so it's difficult to kind of risk or to gamble on these relievers for volume early on. But Kevin, as you as I've said, as I've quoted here already, and you've said quite times, it's going to be really difficult for you to draft nine guys who are going to start in that first four game series of the season. So I think that Moran has as, as good of a chance slash guarantee to get into games, whether that's two or four innings in that first series, just because of what he's done at the end of last year. From August 31st on, he had 11 appearances for the Twins, just over 17 innings thrown. And in those 17 and the third innings, 23 strikeouts, only three walks, five earned runs in that time. So he's doing really good things at that bullpen in most of his appearances. Seven out of 11 of those appearances went over a full inning. Some of them went two or three innings as well. So he does have that, have the. He does have that ability to add in some extra volume, be the first man up against a team that has only been seeing righty starters in the right situation if the Minnesota lineup has been built around that fact as well. So think that. And then, of course, got to look at PLV, even for relievers. His four, he's a four-seam changeup guy, really working on other pitches during the spring training. But as of last year, four-seamer, 71st percentile in PLV, changeup with 97th percentile. And yes, PLV, I think, really likes changeups, really good changeups as well. But if you have a really good one, then it really gonna, it's really going to stand up. So 97th percentile there is really going to help him keep guys off balance and get those strikeouts that he's shown he can do. Like I said, 23 strikeouts in just over 17 innings at the end of last year. Royals have a pretty lefty-heavy as far as lineups go. With some of their best players playing every day between Melendez, Vinipi, Isbell, and Massey starting at second base. So this is an opportunity I think he can get into games and do some damage, especially in that first four-game series. Not somebody I expect to jump into a closer role. I'm not looking for that. I'm looking for the first man up in these situations. I'm looking for the guy that can come in the fourth inning and steal a win because guys are still ramping up. We don't, Kenta Maeda no, is said, or he's, it's been said about him that he is 100%. He'll be 100% come spring training. You don't know that, especially in this first start in the regular season. The Twins have also had, they've also created a name for themselves as being a team that will pull starters after two times through the order. And so you're if you're not an efficient, if you did not have an efficient start as a starter, there's a strong possibility that reliever for the Twins 
can come in and vulture that win in those situations. And I think Giovanni Moran has that ability to do, especially as a put him out lefty out of the pen. We got some really good relievers on the docket from you guys as well. I'm curious to know if this is if this is an area in which you guys are would focus on, whether it's Moran or the guys that you're recommending, is this a strategy that you would be going after or are you just putting out names? And Kevin, I'll start with you here. But is this just are you just filling out this exercise for the fact that I put this on the rundown or is this something that you're that you think is a legitimate strategy to look at? No, Brian Abreu is one of my most drafted players so far this year. I think that he is one of the players that we talk about in a segment every week throughout the season where he will have value even if he is not pitching in the ninth inning and having an opportunity for saves. With the Houston starting pitching rotation, their lineup, the same thing we were talking about with the starters, only now we're talking about starting rotation instead of good bullpen. He's going to be out there in a lot of really good situations. And Ryan Presley only threw 48 innings last season. Banged up here and there. Wasn't always on. I, I, and got 33 saves. That's the thing. Most of these top closers, most of the closers being drafted in the same tier as Ryan Presley had at least 60 innings. So throw another 25% on top to his 33 saves. Amazing what is available there for the Houston Astros. Brian Abreu has been, was phenomenal last season. I think he will continue to be. The projections have him for... They're not going to project him for a one nine four ERA like he had last season, but they have him relatively in the low threes, some mid threes there. And when he gets an opportunity, and he will get some save opportunities, I believe, I think he's going to convert those. And as the season goes on, as we're looking, yeah, chasing wins, we're really looking for starters with the with the matchups. Hopefully, we have them on our roster. If we don't, we're going to go looking on the waiver wire. And most of the time, they're not going to be there. A guy like this with a team like the Astros is one of these guys that could have between five and ten wins. Ten is the extreme. That's a lot for a reliever. One or two guys each season seem to get there. I'm not going to try to pick who those one or two are. You brought up Brent Suter earlier. That's who it was a couple of years ago for us. But Brian Abreu has as good a shot as any of being that guy, and he's going to get a handful of saves as well, in my opinion. And if anything goes wrong, either health-wise or performance-wise with Presley, there were some red flags both directions last year for Presley. Anything goes wrong either direction, then I don't see why he would not be the closer. Every projection system out there has him over 11 strikeouts per nine. Yeah, you can't predict necessarily who's going to be the guy, the reliever that gets 10. I can predict that it will not be Brent Suter this year (laughs) as he he makes home in Colorado now. Yeah, Brian Abreu, like you said, these are relievers that aren't going to be opening day as the closer. This is not their focus right now, but he has as good a chance as any to rack up those wins coming in in the sixth, seventh inning and racking up those, if nothing else, the case, but being put in that position to vulture those wins early on in the game. 
Chris, let's close this out here with your reliever choices that could help volume your way into an extra win or a couple extra Ks that you wouldn't be getting by starting a guy that is not going to play in the first (laughs) week of the season. First of all, I'm fading Ryan Presley as well. I'm just, I think I'm willing to be wrong on that. I think he's an older guy. He's had some issues. He just is not where he's going in with his draft price. I'd rather take Clay Holmes 10 times over 10 over him. And I think they have similar kind of injury risks. Holmes is just younger and similar job security. So just to give you an example of an actionable, instead of just saying I'm against this guy, look at where Presley's going, look at where Holmes is going rounds later, and I'd rather have Holmes. So just to say that, secondly, to answer your question, I have ab- this is not just an abstract thing to think about, this a thought process. This is absolutely relevant to what I was saying earlier about I'd rather roster some of these guys while, and especially in the beginning of the year. So in the beginning of the year, you don't, there's a lot of stuff that's happening in spring training. There's a lot of noise. People have new pitches. You're not really sure. Those beginning weeks, especially in fab leagues, I'd rather roster these guys than questionable fourth or fifth starters that I don't believe in. So I'd rather roster high strikeout middle relievers that are not closers than Toby's to use Nick's term. And so these are some of the guys that fall into that because they're going to give me probably the same amount of strikeouts. They're going to protect my ratios. And it gives me a week or two to evaluate how these new pitchers and new pitches and what they've done in the offseason in their new situations, what their real pitching repertoire is while limiting my downside. And I think that's a really underrated part of Fab League. You don't have to start six or seven starting pitchers and two to three relievers. You could start five that you believe in And you could start two middle relievers and two closers for the first two or three weeks. And you're not even falling behind very much in strikeouts or walks. So I just want to emphasize that. Eric Swanson's the guy at the top of my list because Toronto gave up Tasker Hernandez for him, right? (laughs) I mean, granted, much more of a Tasker is much more valuable in fantasy than reality, but he's still very valuable in reality. And you look at Blue Jays relief pitchers. I think they had two of the top seven or eight relief pitchers in wins last year and I think that's because they're a team that scores a lot of runs and their starting pitchers have struggled and you could look at Kikuchi as someone who might struggle you look at Berrios as someone who might struggle Manoa's due for some regression I think so those are pitchers that will go out and throw and they'll leave the game with behind and the relief pitcher will come in and the offense will rally because the offense is that good. So Toronto's a great place and Swanson's number one on the list. He's got elite ratios. Jeremiah Estrada throws like filthy, dirty, dirty heat. And there's not a lot going on in that Cubs bullpen. There's a whole lot of mess. Estrada could very much emerge as the closer. But in the meanwhile, he should get a job in the bullpen, putting up elite ratios and striking out a lot of people. So that's a little bit of a, of a saves spec as well. Two people who I don't necessarily think are safe specs, although injuries could happen. Brock Burke in Texas, Jonathan Luisaga or Johnny Lasagna in New York. These guys have elite skills, strike out a lot of guys. Texas is a team I think is going to be better than most people think it will. I don't know. I think there's a lot of, why is Texas spending money? I hate this in the <laughs> analytics world. We're like, oh, spend money on players. Don't be cheap owners. And then they throw out money on good players like Corey Seager and Marcus Simeon. And people are like, what does Texas do it? <laughs> they're doing what you want them to do. Exactly. And, and granted, they, they're throwing a lot at the wall, but they've got eight different pitchers who, eight or nine legitimate pitchers who are like major league starters in that rotation. And they've got three or four or five different relief pitchers that could be closers. And Brock Burke, 
was really good last year. And he could end up being closer or he could end up being a middle reliever. But either way, I think he's going to give you a really good ERA, a really good whip, and a lot of strikeouts and vulture some wins. So I would much rather take those guys than Taiwan Walker or Ranger Suarez in my for the first – just to give you a couple of names in the, in the opening two or three weeks. I'd much rather have those guys than SP4 or 5s on mediocre teams or even some good teams. Let me see what's happening. I'll play my uh, – there will be – pitchers come into the league. Starting pitching comes into the league. It comes in early, and you have to act on it, but it's there. So every year it's there. Every year someone has new pitches we don't know that they had. Every year that it, like some new people emerge like, oh, my God, I got to get that guy. We're not going to get Spencer Strider every year, but we're going to get someone that's two-thirds as good as Spencer Strider. And there's probably going to be three or four of them, and you just need to target those guys. And the great thing about putting yourself with Jeremiah Estrada or Brock Burke is you don't mind cutting those guys in the first couple of weeks if you get a good starter that comes up. To your point earlier, they could go in two different directions. They could be valuable in two different ways. Kevin, you pointed this out with Abreu as well. Find the right reliever. They can become the long man. They can get you the strikeouts. They can vulture some wins. Or they become so good that their team has to consider them for the eighth or ninth inning role. And they become even more valuable in that direction. And if they don't go in either direction, Chris, to your last point, they're easy. They're the easiest cut that you'll make all season. Simple as that. So I think these are all great names to keep an eye out for. Put them on your watch list at the very least. Maybe some more than others. Maybe Matt Boyd. Maybe not. Maybe Matt, Matt Boyd. If you're not a boy like Chris, that's fine. But most of the others, keep them on your watch list. Look at them. You're not going to be able to draft all of them with your last pick in your drafts, obviously. But keep the rest of them on your watch list for that first fab period before the season starts. So a lot of great talk about wins, Ks, innings pitch, volume for pitchers. We'll talk about ratios next weekend. But for now, Kevin, close us out with any other additional pieces of nuggets of information that you can pass on to everybody as we get closer and closer to mega draft season in March. Yeah, I, we've touched on this throughout this episode and other episodes. And it's just, it's so exciting that we have baseball right now, that we're watching games and we've been drafting some of us for months, some of us for a couple of weeks, some of us are gearing up for our big draft in a couple of weeks. And we've mentioned overreaction. Last week I talked about, yeah, we're going to have to do that a little bit this year. We're going we're gonna to have to act quickly, I think, in some instances about some things happening and take some risks that some of these things might stick. At the same time, it really came into focus on social media over the last day and a half where we have had, I think, four teams play two spring training games. Everybody else won now through a day and a half. And all kinds of reaction out there. And I think it's going to affect, I really do think that these things just happening in the first weekend of spring training affect Nathan Eovaldi, four strikeouts on 19 pitches and two perfect innings. His ADP is going up. It's going up, right? His ADP is going up. Right. We are his ADP is going up after 19 pitches. (laughs) And so it's fun. It's cool to see. And yes, I talked last week about we're going to have to act quickly and take chances. Still, 
don't get crazy. Don't overreact to things too much. Yeah, I mean, you have what, Joan Duran was already going triple digits on four or five straight pitches. Kukuchi, I think, struck out four in two innings as well. So yeah. a lot. It's amazing. It's awesome. It is. It's amazing and, and it to see these It does tell this that at least right now they're healthy. That, And maybe that is reason enough for Eovaldi's ADP to go up a little bit or a guy like him. But I have a feeling he's might jump a couple rounds. Rounds. Of 19, <laughs> 19 pitches. All right. You have your, by the time you're listening to this, you have your TARF draft either in the bag or in the middle of it. So you'll have to keep an eye out. Oh, and I am also, I am hosting the final panel for this year's Potapalooza, 7 p.m. Eastern on Sunday evening. So if it's Sunday morning and you're listening, check in, check it out all day long, Potapalooza. And I'll be there with Ariel Cohen and Scott Engel and I believe Bruce Cahill. We're all, we're talking auction leagues for the final right. panel of this year's Potapalooza. That's awesome. And then Chris, you just finished up your Potapalooza as well, talking about what makes a good podcast. So make sure, I think you can go Which back. Is you guys. Yeah, there we go. Or just listen to us. You don't have to listen to anything else. That's fine. Just listen to these guys. Yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say that we, the Bracketology Fantasy Baseball Podcast Tournament will likely, there's a 50% chance it launches Monday and there's a 50% chance it launches a Monday from now. So keep your eye out for that. We've got 64 podcasts and on the corner from Pitcher List was a co-champion last year. So just a great way to listen to new podcasts, explore new content, support each other in the community, and have a good time. I think that was two years ago. I didn't see. I thought CBS won last year. No, last year was the was the Pitcher List on the Pitcher List when it was yeah, just Pitcher sure. List. One, two or three years ago, three years ago now. Last year was a co-champion where we had rates and barrels and on the corner co-champion and because in this year i've literally emailed or tweeted at elon and asked him if he can (laughs) fix the twitter poll shenanigans so that uh, the bots the bots cost so much money that now i think that i don't think they have a problem yeah i'm hoping that problem will be solved but what i loved about our community just to say this at the end was last year as most people that listen to you may know we had two great pods in the Mm -hmm. championship Rates and Barrels with Eno Saris and Derek Van Riper and On the Corner with Nick Pollock and Alex Fast. And there were some shenanigans with some of the votes and it looked like like someone had bought some votes. Obviously, none of them did it. Someone from the outside who was a hater tried to do it. And what was great about it was the two, I immediately got in touch with the four of them and they were like, hey, what can we do? And I was like, how about we do something where you're co-champions and you to symbolize the wonderfulness of our community, you get together and do a megapod. And that's what they did. And they did a mega podcast that would never have happened if that sad person didn't spend their money on Twitter pods. <laughs> that megapod, so thank you to the hater who decided to do that because then we got this megapod where we had Eno and DVR debating pictures with Alex and Nick and that never would have happened. It was awesome. This person without a social life decided not to spend their personal money on Twitter bots <laughs> on a fantasy baseball podcast tournament on Twitter. Hey, we all choose to spend Love our it. money in the ways in which we choose. It's true. Whatever. Some people blow it up their nose. Some people buy fantasy baseball Twitter podcast <laughs> Twitter. To so. each their own, Chris. <laughs> Amen. Amen, brother. Oh, man. With all that, though, Chris, do you have anything else cooking besides the bracketology t- t- trademark pending going out during the rest of the offseason or going into next season that everybody should be if aware of? 
if you're a dynasty player, check out my dynasty 505. It's got about 147 decks embedded in that list too. So if you're like new to dynasty and trying to figure out where do my dynasty play, keep players rank with my prospects and how do I draft that? It's a pr- pretty good list. I'm a pretty successful player in that. And that's free and open to everybody. And then, like I said, we had Richard Sands just wrote a great article about that was posted today with a lot of good fanfare about his inaugural experience in the main event. Richard is a successful player, but not one of these Hall of Fame legends that we hear about on podcasts all the time. And I think sometimes the main event can be this thing that people are like so afraid of. The only way you get better is to try to play. And if your bankroll allows you to en- to enroll in that and you're willing to put the time in, you can be competitive too as long as you really put the work in. And Richard wrote a great article about that today. So take a look at that on the website, baseball-pods.com. And once again, you can always find me at Baseball Pods on Twitter. And you'll find links to all that in the show notes easily enough to find on the uh, wherever you're listening to your podcast on the article that comes out on pitcherlist.com. There's all the show notes are listed in there. So it's really easy to search for. So click on any of the links to find Chris's work and anything else that we talked about, any of the players we talked about and what have you as well. That's going to do it. Thanks so much, Chris, for joining us for episode 104 of On The Wire. Make sure you're following Chris at Baseball Pods to go jump in on the bracket and anything else that he's tweeting about, which he tweets plenty about all the different podcasts that he's listening to and what they're talking about. He gives great synopsis on all the, all the best subject matter that the, they're putting out there. So easy search for what you want to be listening to as well, just by following Chris on the Twitter. Follow us on the Twitter at On The Wire Pod right after giving us a rating review of course wherever you're listening to your podcast once again i'm going to thank chris at baseball pods for joining us and after all that i am adam howe on behalf of kevin hastings thanks for listening and we bid you goodbye aloha everybody hey.